narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. We're starting to see the talk about the breakup of Facebook and those kinds of things. When you when you see those kind of antitrust measures being introduced or or talked about, do they give you any comfort, or do you think that doesn't really go to the store the, to the core of the story? Well, that gives me great comfort. Fa- mm-hmm. Facebook is a, a is, has become a terrible entity that is powering a resurgence of Nazism. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you can't get worse than that, right? I mean, I agree. I actually agree with that, and I would also add that they. That I'll, I agree, and I would add that, that they're the size of one of the largest countries in the world, if not the largest, and that that, that gives them a sense of transcontinental power that, that, that basically no one else has. And right. I think it's 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 beyond time to start to limit that. And whether that's a restructuring and you know breakup of the company through some sort of you know antitrust or or something else. I mean, maybe it's a whole other thing. But I'll. Um, I think that it's become a very dangerous platform, not just for neo-Nazism, um, for really for recruiting any kind of intolerant group that wants to seek, you know, other other radical members and try to organize. And and uh, unfortunately, I think what we're seeing a lot of with these sort of the Proud Boys and these groups that are popping up in America is that. But it's also affecting elections all across the world. Uh, it's been, you know, blamed for sort of the failure of elections in, in some countries due to misinformation, you know, being broadcast out to millions and millions of people at once. Um, you know, India, for example, has had lots of problems with WhatsApp. And um, so I think that, the, you know, there really needs to be some harsh looks at it. And I think the idea that Facebook is getting ready to issue a digital currency, or maybe they already have, and and that, that somehow like that doesn't, that doesn't make it a dangerous situation. Because like I said, they're the size of the largest country on the planet when suddenly they're issuing a currency. I mean, that could devalue the currency of many actual regular countries. Right. Uh, right. They they only got that big because they were willing to violate laws every second of every day. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the propaganda side resurging Nazism. It's the big data analytics side. They have collected and provided so much intense granular data about every person on the planet to unethical organizations that are now looking at it and figuring out how to manipulate people and cause whatever events they want to cause. It, it, Facebook is being used in, to to basically pick and assassinate people. And that happened in Myanmar. Mm. It, it's been used for genocide. I mean, this is Facebook is a weapon like as dangerous as a nuclear bomb. And mm. nobody's done anything about it for years. And people have died. Mm. And democracies have died, you know, I mean, that's a real challenge that, you know, look at the 2016 attack uh, on American democracy, it really was an act of war. And we don't really think of it as an act of war, but it was. I, I do. I, I actually do. I've called yeah. it that many times. Yeah, I too. I mean, it feels to me like, you know, this, even this recent attack, this recent hack, and, and to move away a little bit from Facebook, but doesn't really, is it's still an act of war, even though we sort of brush it off and you guys are like, oh, well, it happens all the time. It's still an enemy nation coming at us and taking our stuff. It's definitely an act of war, and if you if you watched when the DNC ended up suing Russia over the the whole like Podesta and and other hacks, uh, one of the case filings 
from the Russian side said, oh, okay, if, if we did do this, it was an act of war, so it's okay. They said because it was a military operation that they couldn't be held accountable in a court of law. I mean, that, that's their, their exact language in that filing. It was really shocking. And of course, that happened at a time when, you know, the, the media basically was like, Russia, what? Russia, what What happened? What, what Did something happen with Russia? And, and so, like, you know, Instead of reporting on, hey, Russia just filed a, a statement in a in U.S. federal court. Uh, this is what they said. You know, most of the major media was like, uh, next. Yeah, basically ignore the, the big story of them calling it an act of war. Here's a little graphic, well, by was, the way. That's, it was, stated, it was stated in a legal way of if this was what they're claiming, then it yeah, would have been okay. <laughs> Isn't the same as saying it was an act of war, but it's on the edge and still it's very alarming. The damning thing is when the Russian generals on state-sponsored TV in Moscow have confirmed that they are currently engaged in information war against the United States. That is the more concerning part. And we are not really engaged in an information war against them. I mean, that seems to be the case. Are you, you don't hear okay, about Can I address that for a second? It. Yeah, absolutely. All right. um, I will say that we're not in the way that they are, at least publicly. Um, there's a lot of hesitance and reticence amongst the federal agencies to protect the so-called cyber secrets that, that, mm. that we do have. Um, so, and there's also a fear or a well-grounded concern, I should say, that if we unleash these things, mm-hmm. um, you know, what happens next? I mean, so so maybe some people have heard of Stuxnet, which was most likely, no one's really actually directly publicly attributing it, but most likely a combination of Israel and the U.S. working to, to, to disable the, the Iranian nuclear uh, uh, machines several years ago. And it, you know, did it. And was delivered by somebody carrying a USB stick in. It wasn't delivered by like a major hack. It was old school. Yeah. And, um, you know, people say, well, what can America do to respond? The reality is, and this is my own opinion. I don't work for any government agency. I did a long time ago. <laughs> um, um, the, the, if the U.S. government wanted to flip the switch and basically bring these things out of the hangar, um, you know, we could do a lot of damage and, and it would be, it wouldn't take very long. It would be pretty quick, actually. Um, and it, actually the kind of damage that I'm talking about would actually be cyber physical crossovers where the cyber attack will disable something like an electrical grid or something where, and it will cause real time, real life effects very, very quickly. Um, you know, luckily we haven't seen that much of that here in the United States. There's been some attacks on some, some water systems and some attacks on some 911 systems and some attacks on some ambulance systems. Um, you know, and a few, there's been constant attempts on taking down cities and there have been a few cities that have been held to ransom, paid the ransom. Um, but in general, the, those types of lethal cyber physical crossovers are, aren't happening as much as they could be. Um, so that's certainly an option for the United States if they wanted to. And then secondly, I think that um, w- there are things that we don't want to show yet unless they were absolutely needed because they are considered an act of war. If we do it, the next response, they don't, there isn't a cyber response to whatever that is. So the next response becomes a real war. And so that you really have to play. That's a very fragile balance. I think that the Pentagon, um, from my observation, uh, is very keen to try to walk that balance as much as they can, um, for better or worse. And um, 
But, but I also say that there's, I think, a lot of capability here, both in with our government and with private sector groups that are organized to essentially offensively hack. Mm. Do, do they have the same capability of attacking our grids? Presumably they do. The Russians or Chinese or whomever could... could, could in, uh, in, limited, in, lim in limited ways, yes, but because our grid is mostly broken up into smaller grids, mm -hmm. um, there isn't really a way for anyone to just sort of take out the entire United States electrical grid all at once. Um, ah, certainly it. regional regional or cities or but but in many countries where they have one operator you know or two it's much easier and especially in a place like russia where we've been up and down their electrical and telecom systems for years um it wouldn't be that difficult for us but it's to still a bit, a bit of a game of deterrence we've got the same capabilities or or slightly better ones than they and we don't neither side uses their their big guns because they're scared the other side will retaliate sort of yeah 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 Chris, what's your sense of how this looks on a on an international scale? Like who, who who's winning this game between all this war between America and or whatever? Which countries are, are participating against uh, the United States? I believe that the I, I I believe I understand what is happening as well as have a pretty good idea of what we should do that will work out as a counter to it, and it doesn't involve blowing up anything. It doesn't involve lots of harm and mayhem. But as long as there is so much secrecy and denial and and reward given to lies, we're going to keep trending downward. Mm -hmm. This is never going to improve until there is incentive to do the right thing, because it, nations like Russia have a lot more practice at the upper level of of being deceptive in the shadows as far as like the mafia level things go. The U.S. is not any sort of angel, but you're not going to win if you're trying to, to wrestle an, an alligator in the swamp. You're not, as a human, you're not going to beat the alligator, okay? Mm. He's got the home team advantage. What we excel at is truth, free speech, trusting what is trustworthy, and recognizing that people are born equal. That is what our power is. And when the Russian people see that being expressed here at home, they are jealous of it. And we need to use that to flex our muscle, prove that we are worth coveting as a nation. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. So well said. Um, we, however, can't win that game either because, you know, at the end of the day, they'll still be hacking us and we'll still be, you know, still be victims of those hacks if we don't play dirty like they play? Currently, yes, there, you, you got you to gotta fight a little fire with some mm -hmm. fire, definitely. And there is a big need to let our roars be heard, mm -hmm. to make the ones that pull the triggers over there very much afraid to pull those triggers because it's going to hurt a lot. That is mm -hmm. definitely necessary. We're not, we're not pussies over here. Yeah. Uh, however, no, I, I, I agree with that, Chris. I mean, I think that that's an important point. And also for the last several years, because of who's been our president, and because of his relationship with Putin, there really has not been the type of strong response, perhaps, that we should have seen over other things that have gone on over the last couple of years. And so, so I would advocate right now, um, especially that we're in a presidential transition time and it's 
kind of, you know, what's America's response going to be and kind of like a little shaky, right? Um, frankly, the civil, the agencies that are run by, by civilians that are, that are not appointed by, uh, you know, political appointees, um, those, 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 division heads and those deputy chiefs and those chiefs, those are the people who need to be basically kind of saying, okay, this is what America's response is right now. Um, forget all the political nonsense. You know, there's this side, there's that side. Um, but the reality is that unlike four years ago in 2016, when Russia did attack us and, you know, we're proud, and that was not the first time, that was part of an ongoing uh, information warfare. Um, unlike in 2016, Flash forward now, you have CISA, you have Cyber Command, you have the FBI having put, you know, hundreds more, if not thousands more agents onto the cybersecurity sort of, you know, aspect of things. And same with some of the other federal agencies as well. You also have the combined experience of everybody's been able to look back over the last couple of years now and say, okay, well, what were some of our holes where we didn't, you know, maybe we haven't patched all the holes or blocked them all. Um, but I think that a lot of states and localities have made it a stronger effort from, a, from an election perspective, okay? So I think in this situation, we have, a, the, we have the ability to not just flex our muscles, we have the ability not just to hit back, but we also have the ability to, to really start to work on a broader level to create a, an understanding of, of, of how training and, 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 and human skills fall into this like highly complex digital world. And, you know, like Chris was saying earlier about the possibility of someone being bribed or a password or, you know, whatever, something that we would consider like a simple thing. Right. But, but a lot of that also stems from well, we hope that government agencies are all well trained and that they're used to dealing with that. But one of you made the point earlier that you're also dealing with all these vendors, the third party contractors. And, you know, at some point you kind of it becomes a very blurry world who are you really dealing with and who's really the one executing the code or who's really the one you know who's responsible for pushing yes on yes we're going to transmit that thing now to all these people um so is that somebody who's a government employee who's been vetted and has a top secret clearance or is that a contract worker maybe they've checked their driver's license to see that they don't have any you know drunk driving things uh, or, or worse maybe that's a third party person who basically has no accountability whatsoever um and so, so I think that's kind of where we are with this in some ways is that that this these types of large hacks have to stand as a lesson of like how do we get better from a human perspective as well as a technological perspective um and i and just to add i think that with all the coronavirus craziness and the covid misinformation and disinformation that's just pouring out right now vaccine disinformation um, it's inc incredibly important for all of us to be paying attention to, to what kind of information are we digesting. So whether it's this current hack that involves sort of an arcane, you know, technical thing that most people wouldn't understand unless it was explained to them several times, you know, or is it like, hey, disinformation about COVID, uh, you know, that COVID is just like the flu or it's fake or you don't need to wear a mask or which is which is more dangerous? The, the, the one telling you not to wear a mask or the one saying, you know, oh, ignore that cyber thing. It's just, a, it's just some, you know, kids sort of playing around. Um, so, so there's like levels of disinformation here that we're being, uh, we're being attacked with simultaneously. And I think that, that that makes it easier for a digital hacker, whether they are sophisticated nation state or, you know, a, a kid basically, to take advantage of that chaos, of that environment, of people's minds being upset, being off kilter, and, and 
Also, because everybody's working from home and stuck on devices, there's more of a preponderance to sort of click on things. And, and right. maybe people aren't thinking as clearly. And maybe because they're not in their, home, their work environment, they're not having those pop-ups saying, are you sure you want to click on this thing right now? And so they're instead, they're doing it on a device that may not be that safe off of Wi-Fi that may not be secured that with a default password. I'm just using examples. But... You know, we've all created a situation with our own sort of home cocoons in a way, right? Um, it's multiplied those attack factors exponentially. Uh, on there all is, of there, and there is an allegation that, you know, to the, the, uh, the, the cyber attack was hidden within the coronavirus um, pandemic because of the timing. You know, as we look at March, it was the time when it started. And there's a Department of Homeland uh, and uh, Homeland Security official today saying that they believe that it was intentionally started in March because it was designed to to be hidden in, in the chaos of the pandemic, or at least the start of the pandemic, which does make a lot of sense. It also reminds me of this, you know, back in the day when uh, Trump and Putin basically discussed an impenetrable cybersecurity unit so that election hacking and many other negative things will be guarded. This is dead serious, of course. You know, the Russian media said it actually happened. The U.S. media said it was shelved. I assume it was shelved, but it's kind of amazing to think that, uh, you know, three, three short years ago, we were discussing these things. Well, you're taking the words from somebody who, whose words don't really mean anything yeah. there. In that, in that, <laughs> it, it, it's dangerous to pay attention to the specific words because at, at best – at best, Donald Trump uses his public words to express what he would like his co-conspirators to do mm-hmm. in a criminal sense. That is, that is the at best what's happening there. So I don't give much measure or credit to. There was never that, anything like that. There was never any attempt to to build a, a joint cyber unit. I think there was. No, I don't if think there so. Was, it was not for the uh, United States benefit. It would have <laughs> been. It would have been guarded from us finding out about it, and it would have been guarded from uh, us preventing harm to ourselves. But that's what I'm—that's what I mean. Yeah. If he's talking about any sort of guard there, it's not in our interest. Yeah. I mean, uh, David Ignatius actually wrote this way back in the uh, in the uh, Washington Post that you know working with Russia on cybersecurity is like uh, hiring a burglar to protect the family jewels, which of course is exactly what it would be like. But this was serious at the time. Donald Trump was the the president, and Rudy Giuliani was his cybersecurity czar. You know, that, that, can you believe it? I also will speak up for the people who work in these agencies. I mean, there's a lot of people whose names none of us will ever hear who right. are working really hard hours to protect this country from these types of attacks. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of politics. There's a huge amount of nonsense and, 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 and PR like BS. There's also tens of thousands of people, if not more, who are every day showing up to work, um, signing in quietly. You don't know who they are and they are doing the work. And so, so I want to distinguish, like, let's, let's get away from sort of, yeah, there's a lot of talk about politics and Trump's a Russian asset and whatever. He may have sold off lots of secrets. He probably did it in some other way. I'm guessing it wasn't this way. And I think that his way would be a little bit more like, where's my cash, you know, show me the gosh. So, um, uh, but, in the, but I think that his efforts to weaken CISA by firing people recently and his mm-hmm. efforts recently to, 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 to dismantle some of the cybersecurity agencies within the White House or on the National Security Council, uh, and, and also in parallel with the U.S. Senate's inability to 
to pass like a single piece of cybersecurity legislation at all, especially with around around uh, election security. But you know they've really been reluctant. The, the Republican GOP-led Senate um, has been, I think, uh, defunct, uh, d- devoid of any responsibility here, um, and has really harmed America in the long run over several years simply by not like waking up to some common sense. Like we are all being attacked 24 hours a day on all these different levels. And if we're not going to put the money and time and people into this, then yeah, we're just going to become like the, the playstations of other countries and of, of the hacking groups and mm-hmm. hacking cartels and whatever. So we, don't, we don't need more money and the laws though. The, the, the thing about logic and truth and reason is that it exists already. People just need to be brave enough to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. I, I, I recognize there are thousands and thousands of very good-hearted people trying to do their best to protect us every day. They need support, too. We have to be the manufacturers of the tools that they use and give them the armored plating they need to withstand the bullets that are shot at them in a you know cyber sense as well as a yeah. real sense. So it is a disservice for people to not realize that there are contractors with too much access to to Amazon's cloud centers mm-hmm. that that uh, th- they leave their own personal repositories open on GitHub that they mm-hmm. mix with their work duties. Mm-hmm. This stuff is just not understood by the top level and it's going to con- continue sabotaging the effort until people recognize it. Hmm. Really no, I think, that, I think that's a very good point, and I'll actually add something to that as well, which is in the Amazon case specifically, um, they own such a huge part of the server market and cloud space. Um, but one of the things that they don't really do without paying them <laughs> um, is to, to, from the get-go, like, here's, your, here's how to make your configuration secure. What they do is they give you lots of documentation of how to set up a bucket or how to configure something. But there's almost nothing. There's little little asterisks and little you know add-on sentences, but there's really nothing about here's how to make your bucket secure. Here's how to prevent sort of the most common, the 20 most common hacks from happening. And they, mm. they need to well, Microsoft needs to figure out all these You need to drop that word. The biggest problem are that people are misconfiguring things and Amazon's letting them do it. That's not a hack. That's just giving a chainsaw to a kindergarten. Right, I just said that. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't re- realize this at all. This is really interesting. So Amazon lets you put in basically whatever structures you want in, in the programming. You don't have to follow the, the rules. You have to follow the rules to like set it up. But from a security perspective, there's no, there's basically no protocols or structure. Wow. That's fascinating. And there's no way to know if the third party marketplace partner that you're paying money to as a a developer, third party did it in the correct way. So Amazon can set up a, a bucket to be secure by default or whatever, except for their like admins that still have access at the back end. But it doesn't mean it actually works or does anything. And then they'll let all these third-party developers create unsafe scenarios that, that they wash their hands of because, mm-hmm. oh, that was the third party that we, we were just hosting it. The third party is the one that misconfigured it for you. We're and they know it's happening. Right. And they, they, they've been very careless about letting it happen. 
and we're concerned about Huawei and 5G, but really there's already a, a very hackable cloud infrastructure that people could hack quite easily. Well, I think, but, but I think that Chris is making a really important point here. Yeah. Not about I mean, Chris has made an important point here, and I think it's one that gets lost just constantly, okay? There are, there, we have to differentiate between an actual hack, mm-hmm. you know, someone develops some code to literally break into something, Mm-hmm. And and then a human error or a human being bribed or a human doing something stupid or whatever, getting drunk. Um, and, 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 and those are two very different categories. And so a lot of times these breaches that happen do happen because of some human error, but the company doesn't want to necessarily admit it. So they're going to come up with a complicated digital story and vice versa. So like you have that go both ways. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, a, that's sort of the other thing about the Amazon bucket thing was that that's actually very difficult. And this is also true for Microsoft uh, and Google as well. Uh, and same for Apple because of the, the iCloud uh, and the Apple store. Um, these, these, these giant clouds also hold repositories of apps, ecosystems, all these other things, okay? So when you make it so that um, in Amazon's situation, if all I want to do is make a mobile app and I want to fire it up using you know, an Amazon server uh, to host it all, um, I could do that and it won't take that long. And if I, like Chris said, if I don't have someone on my team who's a security person and I'm simply just like implementing it to get it so that it's standing up and running, it's not hard. It's really easy. Uh, and I think the problem is you multiply that by every single IoT company out there. You multiply that by every single company that's got an Amazon bucket or a Microsoft Azure setup or Google setup, you know, you're talking about a scale of, of millions of millions of, of possible attack factors. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we counsel in my, in my company just to our clients and the people we talk to is like, you know, do you really need to be as connected as you are? Does everything in your life need to revolve around your phone? Um, mm-hmm. you, have you thought through like the meaning of having a camera outside of your house that's hooked up to your phone, but if you lose your phone, what happens? You know, like there's just all these things and people have kind of rushed into this um, hyper-connectivity of just everything being connected. Uh, and and, and as in that rush, we've partially made ourselves much more vulnerable, all of us, whether you're a cybersecurity expert or someone who knows nothing about it, just by jumping into that rush, we've all made ourselves much more vulnerable. And I think that a lot of this comes down to some of the companies maybe having a little bit more of a responsibility to the people who pay them for their services to deliver something that's out of the box, you know, much more secure or at least starting with some level of security, not providing something that's just a raw, like a raw, uh, a raw onion that needs to be peeled. Mm. Really interesting. I'm fascinated by all of this. We have to wrap up because we're out of time. But do you guys want to do one final word from either of you? Do you have any any final thoughts? I, I would I would love to do just one final word here. Yeah, yeah. Yes. In the in the early days of moving to the cloud within the U.S. military, there is a letter that is is well known uh, that advocated for it many many years ago, and resulted in quite a quite a push towards moving and developing into the cloud. The signature on that letter is Michael Flynn's. <laughs> well, that's, that's How did very that telling. work out for Well, didn't he, <laughs> he used to work for Palantir as well? So so there you go. Um, and, and Alan, any final words from you? Uh, I mean, I, I just, you know, Flynn never surprises me at this point when it comes to like, you know, 
disparaging international security. Uh, so uh, I think that we all need to look at this recent hack as a warning. That uh, These are all going on. There's all types of these things occurring 24 hours a day, whether it's an actual hack, like I said, someone penetrating a system, or like Chris said, it's a bribe or someone making a mistake with a password. Um, but we should all be like, step back for a second and say, okay, well, if, it, if this can happen to sophisticated organizations that have CISOs and CTOs and security groups, what does that mean to my small business? Or what does that mean to my small hospital? Or what does that mean to my family office mm-hmm. or my family? And yeah. I think that those are these are the types of questions that we should all be asking ourselves and, and use these opportunities as you with any cyber breach to basically kind of take a review of your stock of your situation and maybe make some changes. That's a good way to end it. Thanks very much, Alan Silberberg, who is the founder of Digijax, and Chris Vickery, who is Director of Cyber Risk Research at UpGuard. UpGuard. Thanks, gentlemen. What a great conversation. Really fascinating. I'm more concerned about the hack than you are, and I guess that's a good thing. I feel much better having spoken to you for a a good hour here. Uh, I feel like it's maybe not as as traumatizing or traumatic as it as it was when I first read about it, but um, but maybe it, it I, is. It is. It's oh. worse. It's pretty big. Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. <laughs>